Damn it, Nick. I love being on here with you guys, Nick and Joe. I really appreciate it. Literally too long didn't read. TLDR, you guys are awesome. You know, Joe, we usually try and give our listeners a really good behind-the-scenes look at how a book's being made, maybe additional information that's going to be coming down the line. And you took the liberty of trying to find out the one question that everybody wants to ask most before the show, but we're not going to talk about it on here now um, because you are you just cannot fucking contain yourself. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to have to leave the listeners wondering what the fuck that is. Uh, sorry, guys. But, Joe, what book are we talking about today and who are we talking to about that book? Well, we we're talking about the hammer. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, interesting. Back to back chats. Now we have a, a, a bevy of creators on with us. We are talking uh, with Ryan Parrott, Noah Gardner, and John Pearson about their upcoming book, The Infernals from uh, Image Comics. And guys, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks for having us. us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure Ryan Ryan prepared you guys adequately for what what, what we were like because uh, no, we were like way every way time. Fun. No, it was way more fun <laughs> if I just let them walk into the box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah oh boy, man, but yeah, we're talking about the inf- Yeah, they did. Um, but we are talking about the Infernals today, and the FOC for that is this upcoming Monday. You guys are seeing this right now. Hopefully, listening to it. On Friday, that is the 22nd of January. It was the FOC for this. Make sure you go to your local comic shop, add it to your pull list. You guys are not going to regret doing that. Uh, we'll get into it. We'll make sure we leave some reminders for you as we go along. But, Joe, why don't you hit everybody with the uh, synopsis before we get into questions? Oh, geez, you're going to put me in charge of reading. Holy smokes. Okay. All right. I can read uh, if you really want me to. No, 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 no. Pipe down, pipe down, pipe down. Uh, synopsis. Abraham Abe Morgenstern, the son of Satan, has one month to live. Before he dies, he must decide which of his three wayward children, uh, volatile narcissist Nero, conflicted field operative Jackal, or troubled schoolgirl B, will inherit his shadowy empire. But will Abe ever be able to truly cede control of the apocalypse? Or does the Antichrist have something else up his sleeve? And I believe, Ryan, you described this as succession meets the supernatural. And uh, holy smokes, is that just the most brilliant description of this book? Yeah, thank you. I, the, we flipped it to the omen meets su- succession because it's got uh-huh. a little more tingle to it. Uh, but yeah, that's yeah. What, yeah, 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 which yeah. I think is, uh, yeah. Yeah, but after yeah. reading this first issue, like, yeah, some tingles, all right. Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna ride this one hard, though. Oh jeez, wow. Okay, you're playing on real thick today. But yeah, when you when you told us about that idea, Ryan, I think it was honestly the last time that we had you on. So it was, I believe, Rogue Sun related stuff. Maybe it had to do with TMNT, uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers Volume Two. But either way, what? Yeah, once once I heard once I heard that idea, I was like, oh, this is like this this sounds so kick ass. Um, and I know like there's a bunch of different ways we can attack this, but my my first question is, how did the concept for this story come together? Um, well, Noah and I have known each other since our days back at Bad Robot, um, when he we were both assistants, and uh, we've always wanted to do something together. We've written like film and TV stuff together, but. Um, when I, while I was doing comics, like, I think you might, no, you actually might've been there like the first day I got like my first Batman, that Batman gets a Gotham thing. I think I had it in the, in the, 
You brought it into the office. Yeah, I, I was, was proud I of thought it. it was incredible. I mean, it was carried awesome. it around in front of me. Yeah, incredibly cool. I still have it, and you signed it for me, so I have All a right. signed Ryan Parrot. Yeah, it's, it's now worth less than it was when it was meant. So that's right. <laughs> uh, but but we'd always wanted to do a that's comic a, that's together. a good that's a good investment strategy, right? That's yeah, exactly. supposed to do it. De yeah, degrade your books by writing buy, buy high, sell low. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we we didn't want to do something forever for uh, stuff, and so Noah was as I was doing more books, Noah would send me ideas, and I think we probably went through a lot of ideas just stuff that just like all of them were good ideas and stuff that would work but never with just the one that was fitting our sensibilities and then when noah sent me this one i remember i freaked out i was like I, it was the first one i remember thinking i could immediately solve the characters i could immediately see the larger themes the world the whole thing and it just seemed like one of those ideas that like i was kind of amazed no one had done it yet uh, i mean no there's i know there's variations of people doing stuff with the antichrist and all stuff but like i hadn't seen anybody talking about the Antichrist at like the later stage of his life. Like that, a, that, that, that idea that he's not a kid or somebody who is like dealing with his own sort of figuring out his own place in the world. It's more, he's this established monster. And the idea that suddenly his life might be over and he has to hand it off. You know, he, he's, the, he's the, the son of a horrible father. Now he's the father of terrible children. And that, that, those parallels just, as you, you know, with Rogue Son, I love writing stories about bad dads and, 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 and terrible children. So it was like, it was a no brainer for me. I will, I'll just, I'll just add to that, that, you know, Ryan's skirting around uh, specifically who was sending who ideas. <laughs> and the way that this would go down is that about every week I would come up with a list of ideas that I'd been kicking around either for features or comics and maybe some hybrid of the two. And I'd send them to Ryan and I would get back the world's most tepid response every single time. It would just be like, yeah, man. Okay, cool. Sure. Why not? <laughs> and then finally, finally with Infernals, he, Ryan is, you know, when he gets excited, really gets animated. And I could just hear him, like hear him through the phone. He was like, oh, fuck yes. And I was like, okay, I think we're, <laughs> I think we're onto something. But, you know, the, the genesis of the idea was, as Ryan said, like, it's, it's a different spin than we've seen on the Antichrist before. Who's a, who's a, you know, pretty um, now has become a like somewhat familiar uh, icon in the sort of horror space. And i I tend to find that when I'm struggling to find the right idea, I go back through all of these archetypes that I've responded to that are, that are meaningful to me that resonate with me. And I try to just sort of put them in a slightly different context. Like I try to see them from a slightly different angle, whatever that might be. And yeah, I, I, I really, I, I got kind of hooked by the idea that we are always, there's always this depiction of the Antichrist as a, as a child uh, at the beginning of their life. And I wanted to see what that would look like when they've really had uh, a, a full life's worth of experience to reckon with. Uh, and we're grappling with sort of the, the, the end of the world and their role in bringing about the end of the world from a more mature place, uh, particularly through the lens of their own existential crisis as they face, you know, mortality. So that was how that came about. And, but it really was me and Ryan just wanting to find something. <laughs> so where did the idea come from to, you know, to then make, you know, uh, you know, Abe, you know, the son of Satan mortal, as opposed to, you know, his father being, you know, uh, you know, immortal, you know, a God, if you will. Uh, why, why make him mortal? It just it was for, for the sole purpose of just creating a really great story or like, where did that, that specific idea? Cause I love the succession idea, 
But I was also fascinated with the fact that, well, fuck, this this guy's died. He doesn't seem like someone who should die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think there is there's nothing more universally human than mortality. And so I, I think to explore this uh, through the lens of of a mortal character just gave it a lot more texture, probably just gave it a lot more sort of layers to, to work with. Uh, I also I think we all really loved the idea, Ryan in particular, sort of giving Abe a distinction from his father. He's he is he isn't his dad. You know, he is uh, he's kind of a demigod in the way that if his if his father is a sort of uh, godlike figure or, or possesses godlike power, Abe is a little bit. You know, he's one rung below, <laughs> and the kids are probably one rung below that. And right. we liked that sort of hierarchy just to add to the kind of co internal conflict of the family and this sort of what better way to represent a child's insecurity or to represent a child's relationship to their parents. When we're younger, we, we think our parents are infallible. We think our parents are invulnerable. We think they're immortal to a degree. They're gods. Uh, they're the ones who gave us life. And we are the vulnerable, fragile children. And so we wanted to literally, we, we wanted to literalize that dynamic. Yeah, I, I, I really like the idea that there's a thing in the book that sort of hints at is that Abe's never met his father. Like he's the ultimate absentee dad. And like other people have met the devil, but he hasn't. And I always thought that was interesting. And the idea that suddenly he gets cancer, it felt like the ultimate like, fuck you from dad a little bit like like yeah. i'm really disappointed in you so i'm going to kill you and <laughs> and that felt like such a like like a whole because it does feel like i know you know when you get you know, cancer feels like an act of god and so this like this idea that like suddenly he has it and it's like wow so he's just taking me out and i think the other part there was something we said earlier that i thought was really funny we were talking about why this age and why like with the way the world is it was kind of when we're like, oh, yeah, so the Antichrist has been doing this for like, I don't know, 70 years. And considering how the world feels like it is, it feels like he's kind of winning and doing a good job. <laughs> so yeah. I thought that was like a very sad realization where it's like, yeah, it's not like he's failed. He's probably, you know, looking around. It feels like maybe the Antichrist might be winning. So <laughs> like there was something about that that was very sad, but also really helpful when it came to writing the story. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things I took away too, and I, I think I could speak for Dick on this is that there's all these subtle little details, you know, it, whether it's, it's character layers or setting that you've created here. And <laughs> one of the things that we thought was just wildly you know, fantastic and appropriate is the, the setting of Florida, right? The <laughs> idea of this guy residing in Florida and, and you know, running sort of this, this gang empire, like, you know, uh, you know, like Scarface, you know, if you will, who decided on Florida and why was that the backdrop that you wanted to, to have for the Antichrist's home? That was totally you right now. I, I think it just seemed like, it seemed like a foregone conclusion that it was Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we really threw out any other, any other options. No, no I, I, I mean, it, uh, that, yeah, we we wanted a place that felt kind of like that felt kind of mythic and had this kind of swampy sort of otherworldly vibe to it. And then, of course, the you know the the parallels to to other figures in our life these days who sort of run you know uh, disastrous empires out of their isolated Florida compound. It's it it, it was uh, you know 
a, a, a hint of commentary there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed very fitting. <laughs> yeah, it really did. And Joe's right. And there's like the whole, there's like this other player who you guys introduced later on in the story that again, like, at, like who's has their own approach of kind of tearing the world down. Um, but we won't get into that because we, we want to be careful about spoiling things, but that was another interesting dynamic and I'm excited to see that unfold. But then of course, in all this too, we're talking about the story and we, we will talk more about, it. I want to talk a little bit about the art too, John, you've been sitting there patiently dealing with Joe's weird questions before the show. Um, and, uh, uh, and <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Don't please. So I'm, I'm curious when you, got this presented to you, did it instantly come to you, like the design and everything and the approach that you wanted to take to this? Yes and no. I think the the story that Ryan and Noah um, kind of set out to tell and, and write for this is something that is, um, it ticks a lot of my boxes. It's um, visually, it's obviously got a lot of roots in horror and I love horror, but it's not confined to any one specific genre. So for somebody like me, who's quite um, diverse, I suppose, with their approach to artwork, it means that I can play in a lot of different styles and play with a lot of different uh, genre tropes and lean into things, but not actually be confined to any of them. So um, it, it's, it's fantastic because it's this beautiful, weird family drama just with the spawn of Satan at the heart of it so it means that i can just go weird and kind of play with the darkness but also be a little bit more nuanced for the art as well you talk about like how it has the horror element and of course it, i mean you're dealing with the devil and, 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 and demonic stuff in some capacity you're dealing with horror but there's also like the, the supernatural like where it's like a little more as opposed to like spooky supernatural like a little bit more like i don't know otherworldly in the sense of like what we see when when the the antichrist first comes into the world that that image of all those individuals that surround him just felt like kind of extraterrestrial i guess in a way for me but then all of this too feels grounded because it is set on earth and i'm curious for you is that a tough thing to juggle when it comes to like trying to make sure that it all you're you're get, like you said you're checking off the different boxes but at the same time like you need to give a slightly different vibe to these different parts of the story yeah it's um i mean it, it it's definitely a challenge because i think it's um it's simultaneously a very small story about families but it's on this huge global scale dealing with the apocalypse as well so there's little bits like um when we're introduced to that in the first issue the kind of anti-nativity it draws upon a lot of different cultures and it's um broadening the scale of what the story is visually so it's not just told from this um kind of christian american viewpoint even though that's kind of where it is set it's drawing in this much broader visually um uh, setting so it actually makes it feel bigger and that's something that throughout, I think, is is something that's played with through the visuals is trying to make sure it feels big and it feels like this huge epic um, story when it's actually quite a small story initially that, that we're telling. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite books is Department of Truth, and and Martin Simmons is the the primary artist on that. And when I when I looked at this, I said, "Woof, that that looks, yeah." awesome and so like i know that you drew an issue of uh department of truth and so the the vibes are very very similar i think you two have a very similar aesthetic when it comes to you know evoking you know horror and sort of that 
feeling of like dread uh, was there with your time working on you know just even it was just the, the one issue was that an aesthetic that you said I want to take that and, and bring that into this world because I get I get a lot of those vibes there, especially with the the the, um, the character design of Sam right and just you know with some of the satanic symbols that you know we see a lot of in Department of Truth. Um, I think on a on a subconscious level, so so I've known Martin for a long time, and I actually assisted Martin on his first comics work on Death Sentence. So I actually learned a lot from Martin, and we have a lot of similar interests and um, a lot of similar influences. So um, we like I get that comparison quite a lot, and I think for my issue of Department of Truth, there's some people who had no fucking idea it was me that did it. They just thought it was Martin that did it, <laughs> um, which is like I take that as a compliment. That's great, but. Um, yeah, I don't think there was anything too conscious with the crossover of both stylistic influences from Department of Truth to Infernals. I think it's more that tonally they're quite similar. And um, I think the the scope of the storytelling and also wanting to bring in some of that textural and emotive storytelling through the artwork is, is kind of where the similarities fall. But um, yeah, the 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 kind of work that Martin does on on Department of Truth is just insane. And obviously we had him do variant cover for us. You did. I oh but side note, I took a look oh. at all those variant covers. Uh, Alex Corback, again, who's got a very striking uh you know horror aesthetic, uh but Tula Lotes cover just gorgeous. Un unbelievable. Yeah, yeah so you guys good. got some awesome freaking covers, man. You guys brought in some great people for that. And uh, going back to to the writing side of things, I'm I'm curious, know um, for you, you know, we we talked, we've had quite a few creators on recently where we've had teams of um, a team of writers, like two writers that are working on the story. And I'm curious, Ryan, about mm -hmm. your process with that. But Noah, for you coming in and primarily having a screenwriting background, I'm curious the experience for you writing. I mean, this is your first comic that you're writing, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I'm curious the, the, like what verse, like what you thought the experience would be like versus what it's actually been like, has it been <laughs> along the lines of what you thought it would be? Uh, you know, I think anytime you're trying a new medium, there are, there are certain sort of, um, there are certain narrative rules that, that apply across media. Right. And there are certain sort of, uh, there's certain storytelling tricks that you know you're gonna you're, you know you're gonna employ no matter what. So there 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 like you do have you, you do you're you're never like totally at sea. I don't I don't think. Um, but anytime anytime you're working in a new medium, you're really like feeling it out. And mm -hmm. so I I hadn't worked. I, I think I was not surprised at the at the degree of difficulty i knew that it would be difficult i knew that it was a different medium i had a i had a pretty good sense just by being a fan of of the medium and reading so many comics of rhythmically and you know uh in terms of just like it, yeah really rhythmically how different it would be in terms of what I could show and what I could say and how quickly I needed to be getting through some stuff and how much of comics is, it uh, is what you're not saying versus what you are saying. Uh, and that's that, you know, that's true regardless of what medium you work in, but very much so in comics where everything has to be so deliberate and so precise in terms of how much information you're giving in what panel. Um, so all of, all of this to say, I, I had a sense of what I was getting into, 
but of course it's tricky. And I hadn't tried a new medium in, in, in 10 years, really, you know, mm -hmm. I don't write, I don't write a lot of prose. Uh, I, I haven't had an occasion to do anything but write for the screen. Uh, so it was a really fun challenge. I really enjoyed it. I of course had Ryan there to kind of mm -hmm. be the guardrail, which is, you know, in terms of a, you know, formal talent and, and knowledge of the craft, uh, and with John and with House and like just the whole team knowing comics so well, I felt like I had some really good sort of uh, guardrails up. But yeah, man, it was a really it was a really interesting experience for sure. All right, all right, all right. He's being <laughs> modest. Okay, <laughs> he picked it up immediately. I'm gonna be honest. I haven't said this on any interview because I don't think Noah's gonna disagree with me. But like because this was his idea. Like I really have let him sort of be the showrunner on this project. I really do let him make a lot. Like I, I go, I take follow his lead on a lot of stuff because he has such a good handle of these characters and what he does. And some of the way I've actually learned a lot about the way to write dialogue because of the way he approaches the scene and the way that we'll talk about stuff. Like I've always been I, predominantly with writing so much Power Ranger superhero stuff. Like usually it's like three pages before you have to start another fight sequence. That's usually sort of the way you got to keep the thing moving and stuff. And so this was like one of my first real books that was a little slower, a little bit more contemplative, a little bit more talking heads. Um, and that was something that really, really made me nervous because I was like, I'm just used to not, I'm just like, we got to, something's got to happen. Something big's got to go. We got to do some, you know, I got, I'm always very worried about the artist being bored. You know, like the, I, 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 I remember somebody told me this really early on. It was like, nobody got into comics to write two people sitting in a coffee shop drinking coffee, which I don't think is true for every artist. There's probably some who are a hundred percent okay with that, mm. but most people are like, they want to stretch, they want to stretch the, their boundaries. They want to try stuff that's new. And, and I, the thing that's been really fun is like, Noah's actually been the one who's been reminding me, Hey, like we got to. We got to spread this thing out a little bit. Like I remember in, I think it's in issue two, there's this scene, there was like a regular walk and talk. And I was like, I wasn't sure what we were going to do with it. Noah said it in this incredible garden with all of these sort of like demonic, the difference, the Lords of hell. And then I, I, and then it turned into a double page spread. And I was like, holy, it just like, it's, that's the fun part where you have multiple collaborators where you just like, you get in the middle of it and you have an idea for the scene and then someone takes it and makes it better. And then it goes to the artist and gets even that much better. So that's the fun part I think about the, 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 the answer. The question of having multiple writers and collaborators is they, they push you out of your comfort zone and they, and then teach you. And then every once in a while you get to carry the water for a little while or get to use some of your knowledge to experience just, just yeah yeah just to i mean just to jump in and give everybody a sense of of i, I mean maybe uh how ryan and i sort of complement each other i you know i i don't even know if this is a product of my screenwriting background or just you know a a, a bad habit that i have but i was finding that in writing comics i would just it would get a little bit linear for for a bit where I would just mm. be following one character or one story, it was just something that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to need four or five pages to tell this story. And Ryan had such a good sense of sort of readership rhythm. Like what, when you are reading this, at what juncture do you need to add a wrinkle? At what juncture do you need to suggest something else? At what juncture do we need uh, to fold in another storyline? 
And so a lot of the pieces, you know, <laughs> if I had been left to my own devices, it probably would have just been Abe lying in a bed, like con <laughs> contemplating his <laughs> mortality for a while. <laughs> With like John maybe a couple of the shit out of that. Yeah, which I love that. Yeah, <laughs> just bedpans everywhere. You know? <laughs> but, but I mean, Ryan really just—it's—it's it's always fun. It's—it's it's like working with a really good director in 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 my world, where it's like you have your script, and it is to a degree a sort of linear document, and then the director comes in and says, "No, no, no, we need this other piece. I don't care." about the read i just i we need this other piece because when i put this on screen when i shoot this i need more to work with and ryan very much falls into that mold of saying when the artist is drawing this they're going to need more to work with when the reader is reading this they're going to need something else to latch onto. so i can't i can't speak highly enough about ryan's capacity to sort of know what other layers are needed that was that was really important yeah, because I, I find it fascinating when you have, you know, we, we've had a bunch, like we said before, tan, you know, teams, uh, writing teams on here, and, and the approaches are always different. But what always fascinates me is how two distinct voices can come together. Because when you read this, I'm always blown away that when you see a book that's written by multiple writers, it's you have one voice, right? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of times well, you can do that and, and you can tell, okay, someone else has been writing the dialogue here and someone else has been writing the dialogue there. It's, it can, it can feel clunky and, and out of place. But again, with, we, you know, we had the gang on from kill your darlings on, you know, last week. And yeah. again, it, it feels like one voice, right? This feels like one voice. And especially when you're dealing with so many different characters, you know, that have their own layers to them and their own, you know, very distinct voices. What was that like, you know, for you two, uh, you know, in terms of like, who's going to, you know, sort of take charge here, take charge there and just sort of bring it all together in sort of one cohesive voice. I mean, I think it's just, honestly, it's a, it's a sort of iterative process where it's, you're going back. And this is something like, I, it's, it's a process that I'm pretty familiar with because as a screenwriter, I work with I work with a writing partner largely sort of 75% mm. of what I do is with my, my writing partner. And he's somebody I've known since I was three years old. So we have, a, at this point, we've developed a really good shorthand for uh, each other's voice and what we know will work and what we know things should sound like. Um, but everything is just sort of passing, passing back and forth. I find really just helps. It's, it's an essential part of being, in a in a writing partnership it's it's really tricky to just say all right you're going to take pages five to ten and i'm going to take pages one through four and then we're going to just hope that they sort of match up uh not only because the voices won't cohere but also the, the second you get to the you know you, you reach the second panel and all of a sudden you want to change something yeah. so like there's you know the continuity of it starts to adjust and starts to get a little bit wonky too so it's something that I've, I, you know, I've definitely championed and I think it has worked well with me and Ryan is to just like constantly be editing each other and constantly be working with each other's pages. And eventually the character sort of takes on a life of its own yeah. where you through whatever, you know, alchemy, you've produced this character whose voice works. You've refined it enough where you go, oh, this is this is who they are. This is who he is. This is who she is. And uh and then you what anytime you're writing that character going forward you have a north star to sort of work with you actually have a template 
uh, and and finding that template, I think, is is just a requires back and forth. It requires cooperation. I think the art element of it after that first issue is also something that I hadn't realized is that once that John put the characters on the page and we could see Nero and we could see Jackal and B, I think their voices change in each issue after that. Like I, I like oh, yeah. I think there's a because once they become tangible and you see them and like like I just like all of a sudden it's like oh the way that I'm going to articulate the way that they speak with other people the way they carry themselves just the way that like I do think that's something that is real fun with those first early stages is just like oh okay cool I'm getting it's like they you it's like talking about someone and then meeting them I don't know if that makes sense but it's mm -hmm. like it, it was yeah no not yeah. not I mean yeah not only did John like give John and Hass and like the, you know the voice that the lettering gives to our characters it you know that contributes to our understanding of who they are and so it's constantly evolving for sure and <laughs> you know I just think uh yeah, no, it, Ryan's Ryan's exa Ryan's exactly right. Like as soon as we saw the characters coming through, you start hearing their voice just a little bit differently, mm -hmm. and it really does speak to how much of a living medium comics is. This is also that 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 has probably been outside of just the technical differences between writing a screenplay and writing uh, writing comics. The biggest shift has been that this shit comes out fucking monthly. Like this shit <laughs> comes out. And my, what, I, what, or I, not. what I'm <laughs> what I'm used to is working in development for years on a project, right? Like between mm -hmm. studio notes and producers notes and directors notes, like I'm going back and forth all the time. And there's so much wiggle room for me to go back and too much wiggle room for me mm -hmm. to go back and change things and <laughs> amend shit. And so, you know, we even got, it was like a couple weeks ago, our editor emailed us and was like, all right, guys, we're on the monthly clock. And it's like, well, shit! I, all these, all these. What are you talking about? Like, put me back in development. Like, let's, this thing's this thing's not fucking baked yet. But like, it 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 is baked, and it will continue to bake. And that's a really, really, really exciting thing is to know that the voice you had for a character in the first issue is going to evolve by the time you reach your fifth issue. And that is an extremely exciting thing, a thing about this medium, and and something that I've really had to learn to embrace and uh mm. and i think is really important for 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 any creative you know comics offers you this this thing that other mediums don't and uh it's been a kind of a thrill i, I think for me as well it's, it's it's been nice kind of seeing like how you'll kind of like tweak things or like you'll slowly like um kind of put more emphasis on certain things when you've seen the artwork and it's like oh, okay so we tweaked this for this issue because of how i've drawn it in <laughs> previous ones um and yeah i think that's testament to how it is that naturally evolving thing but also it's um this doesn't feel like a script written by two people for me which i think is fantastic yeah. and again that's just emphasizing the power of of you, you the, the collaborative power that you both have because i get it through and it just feels so kind of slick and tight and mm. just fantastic but energetic and even though there are a lot of talking head scenes it's not like it is just two people sat yeah. doing nothing it's like oh they're in this really fucking weird setting or there's like all this other shit happening around them so it allows me to just play with with that a lot more 
Yeah, and that's the thing when you brought up Ryan how this doesn't like how this is maybe like a slower moving book versus versus like a superhero book. Yeah, sure, okay, right. but at the same time, like I, you know, while I didn't fly through this because there's a lot to take in, like this moved at a very even pace, like like per- perfect pace for the the subject matter and everything that's going, and the info that we need that we're dealing with. And I think the other thing too, that also plays into that is John's art style. I mean, everything that he's drawing, like he's not wasting a single ounce of space. Everything looks really fucking cool. Um, I particularly, I think my favorite character design has to be Sam. I'm assuming that's the case for everybody too. Um, but he's, he's such, I mean, and I, I want to ask more about him later, but yeah. I'm, I'm curious for you, John, as you learned about the, the children specifically, because I mean, you have, Three kids that are, I mean, the son of the Antichrist are all supposed to be pieces of shit in their own way. And we we do get that it, it, very clearly in their introductions. Um, it, it, so we got Nero, we got Jackal, and then is it Baphomet? Is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, but just B. Just B. B. And I, okay. I wouldn't call her a piece of shit. I'd call her no. a wonderful wild card. I, I, I really enjoy I really like B. Um, but I and I do want to ask you guys later if you have a favorite child. I know pa- every parent says they don't have a favorite child, but I also know that's bullshit. I'm curious though, John, when you got these descriptions um for these characters, did, did it because Ryan and I talked, we talked to him about um Rogue Sun, the design for Rogue Sun a while back. And when when you got that design from Abel, Ryan, it was like right away. And I'm curious, yeah. John, for you, was it was it clear with these kids instantly what you wanted to do and like not just what they looked like but how they were going to move because like b seems to have a very different movement just in the way you introduced her than her siblings yeah i mean there was i mean there's always um character traits that i want to get through with character designs and i think with the three siblings a lot of that felt very natural so you'll have Nero is. Well, was was there anything about Nero's physicality in specific? That uh, well, he's um, in particular bra- ten inches or so. Yeah, <laughs> brash and arrogant and bold <laughs> man. Um, well, I so think yeah. he's compensating, but you'd be sorely uh, mistaken. But yeah, that's it. It's like he's like he's he's overcompensating and he's like very much full on, and everything's on show um so it's um yeah so that kind of felt like that had to come through with the design but then on the flip side you've got um uh b who's kind of static and mysterious and in the shadows and you you like permanently in the shadows despite whatever the lighting situation is <laughs> um and um yeah and like the 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 character traits need to come through um very much so so it just felt like quite natural I think so, so some of the some of the choices john made i will say i mean just like were really stunning they were really to a degree unexpected uh i remember you know nero has this very distinct gigantic tattoo that wraps around his entire body the snake tattoo that wraps around his whole body that yeah. was not yeah, scripted. Script. yeah that was that was purely from john's imagination when we saw it we were like holy fuck did he just did he do this giant full body tattoo and it actually started kick like it kick-started for us some idea you know the motif of the serpent is obviously a very common one associated with uh with the devil and it it gave us some runway for or it gave us some ideas for who nero could be and what his backstory could be and all of that 
And it actually sort of informed, I'm going to fuck up and do another spoiler. I'm sorry, guys. It's okay. But like, we, we embrace it. it. it, it, it that that we, we had this idea that Nero and Jackal's mom was different than B's mother. Mm. It was Abe's from Abe's first uh, marriage. Hmm. And we actually, we decided to make her a succubus and we might, we may just meet her in a subsequent uh, issue. Hmm. But the idea of the succubus as this kind of serpentine character, it made sense that Nero would then get this giant snake tattoo because the motif was going to carry over to his mother and be that kind of connective tissue. So John sort of gave us this idea uh, for for Nero's past that we then got to turn into something else that becomes a major part of our story. So, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. On that same thing, like, what I thought was interesting was it, it made me sort of see, like, when he when we got uh, Jekyll's character and, like, we had seen him sort of mm, different. Yeah. But what I loved is you sh get the shaved head, the the idea that a shapeshifter is sort of completely, like, like all of has no defining, yeah, blank features. And yeah. I liked the fact that Nero is the son of the devil and has a giant tattoo and he is proud of that shit. Right. Mm, but yeah. then you have Jekyll who does his, he's gone the exact opposite of that. And there was, that was a visual thing that I thought was really cool. And, and also just the way I remember the, my favorite thing is just the way you introduced B mm. in that, in sort of those, that same pose in the same, like the, yeah. like the six panel, like that's the stuff. Like it made me the idea that she would stand there and everything changed around her. I thought that instantly gave me an idea of who that person was and like, Oh, she's the person standing in the corner quietly doing her own thing all the time. That's also not in the script. That was just something that you sort of took and shifted. And, and I think you are, John, but I, I think you might be of all the artists I've worked with, like the most director, like artists I've worked with, like somebody that you hand the script over to and like, you take it in a different direction and you, and you apply uh, like, Every else is start, like a lot of the artists we work to, they are trying to appease me or appease the writer. They're trying to make sure that they are telling, doing, they're giving you what you want. And I feel like you're doing something different than that, like in a good way, if that makes sense. Like yeah. you're giving us what we want, but you're giving it to us in a different through a different lens. Like this is what you think you want, but this is actually what you yeah. really want. <laughs> no, there, you, you, you're reading subtext. You're reading. You're reading yeah. metaphor. You're doing that, and you're adding all that in there for us and we're not putting like all of the all of the um the the different uh uh religious iconography stuff i a lot like and especially on like the last page like that stuff's not stuff that we put on the page that cal came from john like that was and and then i will take full credit for it so <laughs> <laughs> but i mean for, for, i think for me like one of the things that i've always loved about comics is the um the rereadability of some comics and i think that's that can't be said for a lot of comics yeah. so i think for me things like subtext and things that you might miss on the first read and then you go back and you want to read it again that's really important to me and this is it's, it's a layered story that, that we're telling yeah. so um it should have those those elements in there so and like going back to the characters as well it's um they need to look cool first and foremost, but they also need to convey something about that character, yeah. um, which hopefully they all do. So, yeah. And again, that's something that kind of twists and change and um, <laughs> become plot points later on as well. Um, <laughs> yep. But yeah, it's like with with Jackal as well, with like the, um, the mirror 
sunglasses it's like and the and the eyes mm. yeah. yeah i mean it was there was a detail you know it's a detail that again not a spoiler but will be revealed in i think for the first time in the second issue where you see jackal's eye he's always sort of concealing his identity behind these mirrored sunglasses and then you finally see his eyes and the way john drew them was just that they were so haunted and kind of destroyed hmm. and uh that that his you know going through so many transformations that had taken this physical toll and it was all reflected in the eyes and these wrinkles, these sort of grotesque wrinkles that had developed around his eyeballs. Uh, super cool. Loved that detail. And it, again, gave us just this sense of uh, who the character was and things that we could do when we got into the more sort of jackal-centric issue. Yeah, yeah I, tell you, I don't know, Joe. I'm worried for you now. If, if Jackal's got two freaky eyes, I know you can't handle that shit. <laughs> well, there are certain uh, things I, you can handle, even even no matter how large it well, is. The when fucking, it comes to that, like, the mouth, horrible. the mouth for eyeballs in the fucking sand, tiny Sandman thing. Yeah, no, Corinthian. Corinthian. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Thank you. Speaking of Jack, I'm looking at uh, at a page where you know John has sort of drawn. You see, you know, one, two, three, four, like sort of five. The same person taking, you know, steps, and then you've got these three sort of uh, panels where you see mm. the jackal sort of changing shape, and that was just, yeah, just so wonderfully done. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask, speaking of the characters, because that again is another draw of the book when you're reading it, is, you know, you've got this underlying story of, you know, Abe, he's dying. You've got the apocalypse. He's got a, he's got to pick his successor, but. You know, he's got his own layers to him. You have Sam and then you've got the kids and they're all, as we've, as you've just heard, they're all very unique and they all have very different traits from each other. When, when coming up with the concept of the children and, and, and handing out their character traits, was there ever uh, the idea of like, Hey, let's make one of these guys or gals a fucking goody two shoes, just an absolute complete, opposite of what all the other children what you'd expect you know the the grandchild of satan to be i i think that jackal was our closest you know to that i think that was because we did have that we did to a degree have that conversation of like one of them has to resist this one of them has to be in opposition to what his family is doing and what his sort of charge in life is and uh we didn't feel you know, like there, there was only so much tension that we could get out of, or there's only so much conflict we could get out of him being in sort of diametric opposition to his family. There's only so much yelling you can do and only so much you're full of shits you can throw. Right. And so what we ended up sort of landing on was that he's a character who's in diametric opposition to himself. Right. Like, so there is this component of him who does resist his family, but there also is this component of him that desperately, like anybody else, desperately wants his father's approval and desperately wants to sort of uh, feels obliged to carry out his father's work. Um, And that internal conflict gave us not only the sort of, not in pops of external conflict when he's when he's at odds with Nero in particular, who always is calling him out on kind of being a snake and not really doing what the fa- like what he should be for the family business mm. and always kind of taking the coward's way out in in Nero's mind uh, and always kind of nibbling around the edges. But so we got those little pops of external conflict, but we really get to see this sort of strong 
you know, current of internal conflict playing throughout. And one thing I don't think we've mentioned is that in the first issue is all through Abe's perspective, right? Like it's his, it's his narration. It's the, it's the patriarch's narration. And then starting in the second episode, we start to hear, we start to hear from the other characters. We start to hear from the siblings. And so each issue is going to take on sort of its own POV. Uh, and the third issue is when Jackal really comes into it and he's the one narrating it. And that's when you start to understand sort of where this guy is coming from and how much of a toll this has taken on him. Well, he's the middle child too. These guys must have been taking a beating his whole friggin' life. I, to be honest, we had never made that connection, but it's exactly right of that the the middle child is always, you know, often a mediator, right? Mm. Like often the one who's sort of caught between mediating between uh, both the other siblings and the parents, and that's often the sort of role of the middle child. Uh, and and that's yeah it's that was not something that we we thought about uh overtly but absolutely it's, yeah, it's in the, as him being the second son too it's also where he's the shapeshifter now too it's like you're adding that layer of like he can't even be his own person in a way um which again i don't know if that was intentional but that's like another nice layer that you have added in there a shapeshifter with an identity crisis was exactly the way we pitched it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There you go. Um, so I, I'm now I, I did say I was going to ask you guys this. So I'm curious, Ryan, I'll throw this at you first. Do you have a favorite child when it comes to Nero, Jackal, and B? It depends on the issue we're writing. But uh, hmm. I, I actually ended up liking Nero a lot more because I, I remember that was like one of the when we wrote this, like, because I think he's a, he's a POV of the second issue. And it was fun to actually take the guy that I had, we had always sort of seen as sort of like, when you first started writing, we were kind of writing him like this Jersey Shore kind of arrogant, like complete, <laughs> you know, like just completely oblivious. I see that. Yeah. yeah, like completely dumb and just like, but like what, when we got into his head, it's like, it was more fun to start. You started to figure out the layer. You started to understand that there was somebody who, like he has moments like the most daddy issues in the sense that he desperately wants to be his father, but can't knows that I think Jackal is probably smarter than him and better than him and probably more respected by his dad. And the frustration of that, um, you get a little bit of that in the first issue when he, when he, when he talks to, when he talks to, to Sam. And I, and I think that part, when I started when you started getting into the layers of, of Nero, I started to like him more. I was like, Oh, I can get, I get, he's not, he's not just a, he's just not a blowhard. He actually is just dealing with being the, the dumb guy in the, um, in the in the very complicated family and, and the and the goal just to piggyback off of that uh, the 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 goal with all of this is to start these kids and it's you know it's it, it's a bit of a risk because I, I think we do we've been asked this question a lot we've been asked the question about likability a fair amount mm. and i'm so glad you guys haven't asked that question because it's <laughs> you know i fucking our, hate that i deal with that so much in my it's my sports work like so much, so yeah. much over the years like yeah. joe joe even say to me like the red sox they're not no one's fucking likable on that team like what what does yeah, that yeah. shit mean what are you talking about <laughs> no and, we, and, and and ryan always draws this really important distinction between likability and relatability right and mm. so we always we think these characters are relatable and how they behave and how they operate even if they are not necessarily likable but we we really did make the conscious decision that when we first meet them, they're fucking awful. Like mm. they're brutal in that first issue, and they're and and they are you know there's some pretty rough psychology on display. Uh, and that throughout the throughout the 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 arc, um, 
we really do get moments of tenderness between them. And we really do see them sort of evolve away from that. So I think, you know, as we've gotten further in the series and kind of come to the end and realized, oh shit, we, we learned something about Nero as we were writing him. Like he actually does, he, he, there are soft spots in his heart. Uh, that was, that was a nice revelation and definitely made us, you know, clearly I think informed Ryan's uh, feelings on him. Hmm. Yeah. Ryan does a great job with uh, dealing with piece of shit characters. I mean, uh, um, <laughs> like it, in Rogue Son, especially it's, it's, we, we love it though. But um, John, same question to you that I had just posed to Ryan and then we'll throw it at Noah too. Do you have a favorite character? And I know this could go two ways in terms of drawing, but also in terms of just like when you get the script uh, from the guys. Uh, I mean, I do. It's a, it's a difficult one because I, I I also really like Nero. Um, Nero being the um, far more external than the two more internal other siblings, um, and for me that's that's a lot of fun. And also, he just some of the some of the shit that he says when I read the script, I just I cannot fucking believe how funny it is. Um, so um, yeah, and it's I, I love it, and it's like from Nara's point of view as well. It feels like there's so many layers of confrontation and um just trying to overcompensate but also he's pretty fragile at the same time and all of this wrapped up in this like big package is just crazy so it's like yeah so it so that's that's a lot of fun a lot of fun for me. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I, I I don't know about you, Noah, but no one said B yet, and that that's who I'm rooting for to, that, that to is, be the, the successor. You're, yeah, your um, I think your wish is going to come true because my my, you know, as we've gone through this, my favorite character became very clearly became B. I just I, I felt a sort of a, a affinity for her. I think particularly as the youngest child, I think there is this degree of particularly when you have an older father that even if you are the youngest you have you have a sense of your parents mortality in a way that your older siblings don't you have a sort of you've grown up with a different with a kind of exposure to mortality that your older siblings probably haven't particularly when you're um in a family with half siblings where your siblings are, you know, a generation removed from you, or in the case of B and Jackal, like 20 years apart. Uh, and that's something I really identify with because my, my dad had me when he was 61 years old and I was the last of all his kids. And the, the first, uh, his, his first three children, my half siblings were all essentially like my aunts and uncles. They were all, mm. you know, in their thirties when I was born. And so, my experience they obviously had a much different experience growing up with my dad uh you know for better or for worse and my experience was really being quite conscious of death from a from an early age it was just that was in my space and i i think that informs some of b's nihilism which we also reveal to you know she does care about things and she does have a real perspective and she does have a voice and uh she just really reveals herself to be as thoughtful and sort of intuitive, probably the most thoughtful and, and intuitive and most sort of tapped into what the real family dynamics are of mm -hmm. all the children. And I just, I'm always, I always root for the youngest sibling who actually fucking gets it. Like who actually <laughs> knows what's going on more than 
more than their older siblings. So I think that's where I've where 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 I've uh, um, you know come to be being my favorite character to write. Noah wrote a line. It was like in the first issue, and I remember like we were working on it, and it was a line where. Uh... I think Nero is sitting across from her and he says something like, if you, if you say something else, I'll kick your effing teeth in or whatever. And oh, yeah. she goes, I bet you say that to all the girls. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I remember I was like, Oh, I know who B is now. Here we yeah. go. Got yeah. that. That's well, great. Yeah. No, it was always just like these deadpan responses. Like she, right. every response is sort of, it's clever. It's a little bit deadpan. It's a little bit cynical, but man, when you start to sort of, reveal what's driving that cynicism i think it i think it really does pay off and, and for us b's sort of pov issue is the fourth issue and uh i mm. I, I i love that issue i think when i think when people read it they're gonna you know uh really dig what we've done with b i can't well, wait to read it yeah and it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, there is there, that the truth to that is 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 what makes it funny <laughs> and i think it's the way john drew too so with this bob but like her eyes are just sort of in this sort of shadow of her bangs just the way she's looking yeah. at it. it's like she's constantly saying i don't fucking like you get out of my way like constantly i like and, that she's at a school in connecticut too it's very, that's also very fitting oh yeah very yeah fitting. well yeah you know the, the states we chose we chose for a reason but uh <laughs> yeah no, when we when we were writing that first issue the idea was like stylistically and i think we put this in the script where it was like with nero we want it to be this gaudy bombastic scene with you know with drugs and strippers and just like gaudy lights and vegas and that was that was the vibe of sort of like uh you, you know, like a like an action thriller kind of overly lit Michael Bay movie. Yeah, and and then with Jackal, it was supposed to be kind of a, a a you know like the Constant Gardener. It was supposed to be kind of like a John Le Carre novel. It was supposed to have this sort of very tactile, gritty feel to it, and feel almost like a spy novel. That was sort of the aesthetic. Yeah. And then with B, it was hey, can we make this like Rushmore? Like, let's yeah. just give it that vibe because we wanted to sort of lay yeah. out these three three distinct aesthetics that would carry uh, that would carry us throughout. And um, I mean, obviously, John just nailed it across the board. And, and like Ryan said, added these other details that that elevated the whole thing. And, and another character that also intrigued us, too, is, as Nick mentioned, you know, was Sam. This this fucking freaked me out. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, like so. Tell us a little bit about because he he's sort of like Abe's consigliere, right? He's the, the the family advisor there. Is he? You know, tell us a little bit more about him because he, he seems like he's very like he's pro Abe, but like at the end of the day, is like he answering to Satan and being like, all right, like I'm, I'm oh, telling the big guy. Whoa, where do we get those stickers? Oh. What the heck? <laughs> Well, wow! Available at local comic book stores. No, we we uh, they made some of these up. That's Sam, in case anybody's watching. Isn't that pretty yeah. cool? Jesus, Good job, John. Fucking it's terrifying. I want oh this on God. a shirt. I'm just saying, kind of yeah, fits that would perfectly. Be, be cool on a shirt. Yeah. Oh wow! Look at so that. who came up with the concept of Sam? And like, you know, is there more to his character than just simple Tom Hagen consigliere? Yeah, for sure. And I and I think you actually honestly touched on it quite a bit which is you know the the character goat head aside which i think was a ryan detail i think yeah. i think that was a ryan thing <laughs> but the idea was we wanted this character we, we essentially have two characters that really humanize 
Abe, his children, his children humanize him to a degree, but when we first meet him, they're not living at home. Uh, so it's like, you don't have them around to kind of play off of, but you know, to have this paternal character in his life immediately makes Abe more human in our minds. Uh, and, and, and suggests or hints to the audience that, that look, they're like, there is real tenderness and affection and, uh, familiarity in this book. And I think we get a lot of that through Sam, who clearly cares about this, this guy, this 80 year old man who he's raised from being a baby. And, uh, you know, your point, Joe, about like, about Sam being caught in this world, but sort of caught between allegiances between the master who he's really serves, which is Satan. No, no, no spoilers. No spoilers. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, the, the person who he's grown closest to and this responsibility that is really truly meaningful for him, which is his relationship with Abe, without any spoilers, uh, those two responsibilities in his life will come into conflict. And that, that is something that he's going to have to make a decision as to mm -hmm. who, whose side he's really on. Nice. You can you can tell me off air. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was an interview we did. Somebody called him Goat Alfred, and I was like, "Now I can't get rid of that." Goatfred. Yeah. <laughs> Goatfred. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Oh man. Uh, well, on the note of, of spoilers, and obviously, again, I'm asking this with respect to spoilers. So I'm going to direct this at Ryan just in case. Um, I oh, the, the the end. Uh, I don't again. Don't want to get into specific details of the end of the issue, but. You get a strong ending. You add something else at the end that kind of adds another layer that we had no idea was coming. And then you get this letter to the reader and, and it reveals details in there. And I was like, look, obviously letter to the reader is not an uncommon thing in a first comic issue of a comic, but Ryan, I'm I, that like, though, I'm just curious where, like how that decision was made to add those few details that like, Hey, I'm feeling good coming off reading that issue. And then I see this shit. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> uh so noah's idea gotta be honest that goes on so i i we were talking about because we did, i did one for rogue sign and i was like okay you know usually there's like a letter at the end he's like do you want to take something and 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 Noah was like yeah but like i've read those like let's let's try to do something different and mm. i was like okay he's like he's like i got an idea and then he sent that over and i was like holy shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, it, it came, yeah, and it came from a couple different places, but one is I always find that these sort of letters from creators having, having written a few just like as cover letters or whatever, you know, a lot, a lot of my job is trying to sell your thing and you're, you, you end up saying the exact same shit about your project over and over again to the point where it sort of sounds meaningless at the end. Like it just feels hollow. And I always find with some of these like, you know, letters about what the book, what's, what's the book really about? I just, you smell a little bit of bullshit, I find. And I, uh, I, I, so I wanted to do something where we, where we brought Abe's voice back into it. I also wanted to just kind of like have that pervading the whole issue where it's like, no matter where you look in this issue, Abe's with you, like he's still there. Uh, and yeah, so I thought I thought that was a sort of fun thing, and and you know the way Abe operates is always to kind of cut against the grain and be a little mischievous, and for him to sort of tease shit out that comes in the next episode felt very much 
like an antichrist move uh, <laughs> and, and very much very much sort of against the standard formula, which is, I, I, I think, something that is super important. And um, if you guys so you guys have seen that, which means you've seen the sort of pinups. Have you guys seen those at the back of the book? Oh, I gotta pull it back up. Uh, I actually don't know that I. I think I saw oh, that. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This so I've been sharing out there too. I saw some of these before. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been we've been sharing a few of those because we I, like our our entire philosophy with the book was you have, you know, twenty however many pages of story, but you have thirty pages or plus of material, and we wanted it to feel like if you pick this thing up, you're getting a full book's worth. Of, like you're getting a fully nice. immersive experience you know what i mean That's a and, nice touch. and for us to be able to showcase artists who you know might be a little bit more off the beaten path and might be a little bit more in the indie world and haven't yet become mainstream it's like what better fucking way to do that than throw them at the back of the book you know share their stuff on socials use it to promote our work and and the story and uh uh and give the audience this kind of like holistic experience of living with the, with the, the Antichrist family for a while. It's just fucked up. Yeah, my goodness. Yeah. All right. Before we let you guys get going, I do want to make sure because Ryan, last time we had him on, said that Joe and I need to talk more sports. He likes oh, it apparently no, when we do that. No. <laughs> oh, you don't want to talk dolphins. I that don't. Was, I, I don't oh. want to talk about shit, man. I was, Ryan, I, I was gonna, I was gonna text you, and then I was like, he's never gonna write those pages. Thank you. Yes, they're fantastic. Suck it, OKC. <laughs> Hey, could be worse. You could have been the Patriots, okay? Oh, uh, hey, Noah, who do you like? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, all right, all right, okay. all right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so speaking of daddy issues, Bill Belichick just <laughs> walked away, leaving an entire fucking yeah, group and he's going to go to fucking Dallas and win a fucking Super Bowl. I, I think I think he is. I yeah. think he is going to go to Dallas. There hasn't yeah. been any news though, right? Like no, 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 no. Just just that he uh, interviewed. I saw with interviewed with Atlanta. Yeah, I saw that. If, if, if he ends up in Atlanta, that's going to be so be, fucking lame. That'd be so, no that'd be funny though. That'd be I really think it's. Funny. I think it's. I think it's Dallas or Washington. I think uh, Washington would give him the latitude to like do whatever you want. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like new owner beleaguered franchise you gotta bring if you bring in belichick that's like immediate credibility yeah all, mm. all of this breaks my heart to say <laughs> by the way having <laughs> lost brady and belichick in the course of four yeah. years yeah we At get least... to go back to being fucking patriots fans from the fucking 90s again yeah, exactly we'll <laughs> At least you guys didn't have uh, an entire documentary crew doing a one-hour special after every single loss for the last three weeks. <laughs> like, hey, what's on HBO? Oh, good. Let's relive it. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's funny is that the other day my wife was like, should we watch this last Hard Knocks? And I was like, I think it's going to be kind of a doozy. Like, <laughs> I don't know, man. The one before, the the one for the from the Bills one, where he talks about his uh, uh, alcoholism, was pretty awesome, though. Uh, I didn't see that. Yeah, I didn't, yeah I that one's worth it. it. Like, yeah. I like him a lot. Like, I even outside of everything, I just think he's a really interesting and cool guy. He's guy. come I a like, long way. Yeah, I like to, I like the way he talks about stuff. Like, I like his approach to people. I think is a really good thing. Like, I think his approach to just the way he raises people up now let's work on you know figuring out a better run game but now we got that so let's go <laughs> you know 
Yeah. Uh, he's McDaniel's awesome. He's awesome. Oh, man. When I saw that you guys were dealing with snow, though, I was like, hey, oh, this God. This yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. this is tough. But that is it for Sports Talk on TLDR. <laughs> More importantly, everybody, make sure you go to your local comic shop as soon as you're done listening to this. If you haven't done it already, let them know you want to add the Infernals to your pull list. The deadline for that is the 22nd of January. If you're listening to this today, this is dropping. It is on Monday. It's only a couple days away. So get on it right fucking now. Uh, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We hopefully can catch up with you three down the line at some point. Awesome. Thank yeah. you guys. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thank really you. appreciate it. I like Nick's just like, I'm out. All right, we're yeah. done.